You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Monster House presents Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Rating us on iTunes is great, but positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Here's a bit of weird American political history in verse. This is about Captain Meriwether Lewis and his famous Lewis and Clark expedition. But it does make me ask this question. If Lewis and Clark were looking for the Northwest Passage, then why is this satirical verse making fun of the captain for failing to find a woolly mammoth? Let's have a listen. What marvels on the way he found, he'll tell you if inclined, sir. But I shall only now disclose the things he did not find, sir. He never with a mammoth met, however you may wonder. Not even with a mammoth's bone above the ground or under. So why was Meriwether Lewis looking for a mammoth? Because he'd been told to do so by the most powerful cryptozoologist in America at the time. President Thomas Jefferson. Monster Hunter. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In April of 2019, I was fortunate to be able to attend 
Joe Laycock and Natasha Mickles Academic Conference of Gods and Monsters at Texas State in San Marcos. I was there to present a paper about patterns and monster flaps, but I was also there to listen to many wonderful speakers talk about their research into monsters. The presenters came from a variety of disciplines, and their topics of interest were quite varied as well. I heard discussions on Yeti, Bigfoot, vampires, ghouls, and a variety of other creatures. The discussions were not just about the nature of the creatures themselves, but also how cultures from around the world incorporate the monsters into their legends, folklore, ceremonies, and beliefs. I was also privileged to have time to hang out and socialize with this eclectic group of researchers. These are memories I will always cherish, and fortunately, many of the speakers who I heard are also going to be sharing their research with us here on this show. We've already heard from one of them, Eric Mortensen, who talked with us about the origins of Europeans' concept of dragons out of a variety of traditions and beliefs from Central Asia and from the Middle East. In the upcoming interview, we'll be hearing about the less well-known story of how Thomas Jefferson became a monster hunter to defend the dignity of this new nation from the insulting views of an influential French scientist. Before we hop into that, I wanted to remind listeners that we're now an independent podcast through my company, Monster House LLC. I'm proud to say we've already signed our first advertiser and we'll begin dropping in ads soon. I'm very serious about maintaining the brand integrity of Monster Talk and only want to take on ads for companies whose products Karen and I really enjoy. As a reminder... If you want an ad-free extended content, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. Our new Patreon tiers provide you with ad-free content for as little as $1 a month. If you're a Patreon listener wondering why I'm including this in your show, it's because I wanted to remind folks who are already supporting us on Patreon that you were automatically converted to monthly support, but probably did not get put into one of our new cool support tiers. So please take a moment when you have time and make sure you're supporting us at the level you intend to so that we can get you the correct benefits when we get those set up. We also have a lot of work to do around the next couple of months, setting up a new website, adding new art, getting a new store with merchandise, and we have some exciting announcements about new shows coming from the Monster House label. So stay tuned. Big things are afoot. But for now, let's join Justin Mullis for some Thomas Jefferson-themed Monster Talk. Hey, Justin, welcome to Monster Talk. Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, so my name is Justin Mullis. I am a scholar in the field of religious studies. Uh, so I graduated with my master's degree in religious studies from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte in 2015. And then I taught in that same department there from uh, 2016 to 2017. I am currently in the process of uh, PhD applications, uh, so looking for that next step. Um, and most of my academic work has involved the intersection of religion and popular culture. Uh, and uh, so my presentations, my published work, my classes have focused on uh, sort of religion and uh, notions of, of fandom, specifically, especially like science fiction fandom. But also, like, um, just it also in the material of, of science fiction uh, in and of itself. So, and that's that is also was then sort of my entry point into uh, some of my current work looking and, and writing about cryptozoology because uh, um, I recently had an essay published uh, on the intersection of cryptozoology and science fiction for a book put out by uh, Routledge called The Paranormal and Popular Culture. So, 
Wow. Very cool. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Thomas Jefferson today, an interesting area of his life. But uh, just for our non-American listeners, uh, is he the lead singer from Jefferson Starship or who is Thomas Jefferson? Uh, So Thomas Jefferson is one of our founding fathers in the United States. So he was our third president. Um, He was our second vice president. He was our first secretary of state. Um, He was also the author of the American Declaration of Independence. So he was he was a pretty prominent and important person in in the history of the founding of the United States. And uh, as as I'm going to argue, um, he's also really important in the history of cryptozoology, too, which is not one of his achievements that he's uh, he's usually recognized for. Yeah, indeed. I didn't know anything about this. Did you, Blake? Uh, Not until I heard Justin's presentation. So, no. Now, I did know about one tiny aspect of it. I remember watching um, the, I think it was Kim Burns did a Lewis and Clark documentary. And they were talking about, uh, on the Lewis and Clark expedition, Jefferson was specifically asking Lewis and Clark to look for a specific animal. But I don't want to spoil that. So uh, we'll let let Justin get into that. But no, I was basically completely ignorant of this. And my hope is that our listeners will also be somewhat ignorant and will be excited to learn (laughs) new stuff. I mean, I mean... What we want to do as much as possible, I think of uh, our audience as like a giant coloring book, and we're just coloring them in with science and history. So, um, you weirdo, I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. That's probably the tequila. So just let's move on. Right? Sure. Okay. Well, I, I guess I'll ask: What does Thomas Jefferson have to do with cryptozoology? So yeah, this is not an aspect of Jefferson's life that is is I, I would agree with you guys. It's not particularly well known, um, which is not to say it has not been well documented. That was the, one of the things that really surprised me about this when I, I started digging into it is that there are actually a lot of books um, and and essays and and papers out there that talk about this, but but kind of like Blake was saying, they only talk about little facets of it. And so what I really wanted to do was try and kind of put like this whole picture together about Jefferson's uh, sort of cryptozoological career and and also just actually how important it was because this was not just some kind of like lark he had on the side. I think that this was actually very instrumental to understanding Jefferson as a person and also um, it's instrumental to understanding his conceptualization of what America um, should and, and, and would become. Uh, so... To really, though, get into understanding like the relationship between Jefferson and cryptozoology, as I, as I talked about in my presentation, you can't really start with Jefferson. You have to start with uh, another guy, um, a, a very different person, and that was uh, uh, Georges-Louis Leclerc, um, who was also known as the Count of Buffon. And he was a French uh, scientist. He was basically a celebrity scientist. Uh, he was um, born in uh, 1707. And he went to the University of uh, Angers, um, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah, University of Angers, where he graduated in 1732. Um, and almost immediately after he got out of college, he was given a, a job with the uh, French Royal Academy of Science in their engineering department. And then that immediately landed him a contract with the French Navy uh, working on redesigning their ships. And uh, because... Uh, 
the ships were made out of wood at the time, Jeff uh, Buffon decided that he needed to not only know everything there was to know about ships, he needed to know everything there was to know about trees, which meant that he then needed to know everything there was to know about plants, which led to this new interest of his in botany, which then eventually led to him also moving to the botany department at the Royal Academy of Science, and then eventually uh, just sort of this all um, encompassing interest in natural history. And he was eventually appointed the curator of the Royal Botanical Gardens for uh, King Louis XV. Where this is ultimately going and how this all kind of ties together then into Jefferson is so that, you know, so, so the point is, yeah, Buffon's famous. He's a celebrity scientist, right? I mean, he's basically like Neil deGrasse Tyson in a powdered wig. He's incredibly influential. <laughs> he's incredibly important. Um, at this time in the in the early uh, 1700s. And his magnum opus is that he writes all by himself, uh, virtually, a 36-volume encyclopedia called Natural History General and Particular, which uh, he claims to be, quote, a true history of each thing. Um, so it, it's comprehensive. It's pretty much and, like his version of Cosmos, only not on TV. No, no, that's actually a really, really good comparison because... It is like the cosmos of its time because, like, that's the other thing. Is like an encyclopedia about natural history might not sound exciting, but like everybody read this thing. It was translated into multiple languages. It sold out in the first six weeks of its initial printing. Like everybody read natural history, um, and and so that was really important because. Um, Buffon's natural history was really provocative. It was provocative for a lot of different reasons. It was provocative because he put forth the first ever secular explanation for the origin of the earth. Um, he uh, put forth um, a, a number of, of different theories. He, he introduced a lot of people to natural sciences that they weren't really familiar with. But for our purposes, what was also really provocative and really important about natural history was Buffon's theory of American degeneracy. And, and here it'll be uh, important to preface. So Buffon in his many years never went to Americas, right? Uh, and, but that didn't, that didn't stop him from claiming he knew a lot about them. Um, and what he knew about them was that basically the entirety of the Americas were one big cold, wet swamp. Um, which were full of just sad, pathetic animals and people. And uh, as a result, uh, as far as Buffon was concerned, nothing good was ever going to come out of the Americas uh, because of this, right? Their animals were all vastly inferior to the old world's animals. Their people were inferior to the old world's animals. And uh, there was this idea that as far as the, the colonists, right, were concerned, they were going to to be equally degenerate, right? You can't uh, grow up around degenerate plants and animals and not be degenerate yourself was basically Buffon's logic. And this was a, this was a major problem. Uh, and, and Jefferson was uh, the one out of the founding fathers who really realized this, right? Um, because all the founding fathers really knew about Buffon. They knew about his theories. And, and it's clear that some of them, like, I mean, uh, Hamilton and Madison took up their pens and, and, and wrote counterstatements against Buffon. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, there are stories about him when, when he's in France as an ambassador, kind of 
making wisecracks about how, oh, Buffon says we Americans are so degenerate, but look how tall and, and strapping our men are and this kind of stuff. Um, but Jefferson's really the one who decided that who realized how big of a problem this was and decided that he needed to fight Buffon on his own terms, which was in the realm of science. One of the things I want to be clear about from the the get-go here is that, you know, this is not a story about, like, who was right and who was wrong. Because as we're going to see, I mean, Buffon was wrong about a lot of stuff and Jefferson was also wrong about a lot of stuff. And and they were both right about some things and that the other was wrong about and, and vice versa. While we might think today that this is kind of a ridiculous claim that Buffon went and made about, you know, America being basically just a big swamp. It's also not completely ridiculous because if you think about it, I mean, especially at the time, a lot of what we knew about North America kind of confirmed that. I mean, certainly down south, there's swamps. Up north in places like New Jersey, the Pine Bearings, there are swamps. We admittedly built our, uh, our, our na- nation's capital ultimately in what was at one point a swamp right you know? so and as far as like the animals yeah i mean you know the animals that people had had a chance to encounter up to that point our wolves our deer etc um certainly would not have seemed as impressive as sort of the old world stock and certainly did not hold a candle to anything like uh you know the elephants and and hippopotamuses and lions of africa so which would be or the tigers of Asia, right, which would be something that people are thinking about here as well. So Buffon has his reasons. He's ultimately wrong. And this whole idea of degeneracy in general, and especially how it relates to the, the uh, colonists, is is completely wrongheaded. Um, but it's very influential, as wrong ideas, unfortunately, often are. Um, and that was one of the things that, that Jefferson realized because um, Buffon was so widely read, uh, especially in his his home country of France, that um, you know there were it, it has been shown. There's a historian, uh, Filet Roger, has shown that um, you know you had a significant group of of uh, French intellectuals who were opposed to France intervening in the Revolutionary War because they basically thought that they weren't going to get anything out of this, right? I mean, why do you want to go fight for a group of people who are living in a swamp with terrible animals? There's there's no reason <laughs> for that. Why didn't um, and, they just look at Google Earth? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, could have been easily solved. Does degeneracy at this time have the same sort of connotations that it does now? Is degeneracy an insult or just a, a, just an, a regular adjective? For Buffon, I think that it was probably an adjective for some of Buffon's uh, followers and successors. It was an insult um, because like you definitely find stuff where you have certain people kind of taking these ideas about Buffon and basically writing like anti-American propaganda with it. And, and they take it, you know, to a much greater extent where they're saying things like, you know, if you bring a dog, so, so literally this is one claim that you see brought around, right? That if you bring a dog from Europe to America and you let it live in America long enough, it'll stop barking because that's just how terrible America is. It'll drain the vitality out of the dog, right? Wow. So, 
Um, that is that is an actual claim made in French anti-American propaganda for a while, among other things, right? Like our cows don't produce milk, you know, uh, our men don't grow body hair, you know, just all kinds of things, right? That you could you could think of. None of these are Buffon's claims, and mm-hmm. it's not clear that Buffon necessarily endorsed these either, though he certainly wasn't doing anything to stop people from making them. Right. So kind of um, scientifically supported a lot of these these prejudices. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, so. it reminds me of Aristotle, oh. where you know people tried to use pure logic without testing. It's this way, you know. It's the things where like people followed Aristotle for years, and then suddenly said, "Why don't we actually count the teeth? Do these things make sense?" And they don't. But I, I it, it reminds me of that anyway. You have to have to bear in mind like the world that Buffon and Jefferson are born into, right? So they're in the 18th century. So immediately preceding that is the 1600s. And the 1600s is important in the, the history of natural history because really everything prior to that is sort of just um, data collection, right? It's just people taking what had ever been written before by Aristotle, by whoever, by Pliny, and just compiling it and just going, okay, yeah, this is what all of the the authorities have said about whatever topic. And then in the 1600s, we have this really important revolution in the history of of science where you start actually getting sort of critical inquiry and people going, Mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, what if the authorities are wrong, right? And like, so what if, so so this is important for where this story is going too. Um, So for example, since antiquity, right, people have on occasion found really large bones in the ground and they didn't know what they were. Well, the traditional explanation for those bones was that they were of giants, right? First, the idea is that, you know, they're giants like from Greek mythology, right? The Titans, the Cyclopses, that kind of stuff. And then after the advent of Christianity, they become the giants of, uh, of Genesis 6, right? Like the Nephilim. And, uh, and this is this is the accepted explanation. And the first time that you see really significant pushback against that is in 1613, where you have these bones that are found in southeast France. And, uh, you know, all of the sort of learned kind of master surgeons of the time, you know, look at these bones and, and they go, you know, they're, they're shipped to the University of Paris and, and the, the, the uh, you know, top dog scholars there all look at them and they go oh yeah you know more giant bones definitely giant bones and um but in 1613 you have a pamphlet that's published anonymously uh, for the first time by a, a young um you know up and coming uh, anatomist who basically says you know hey guys um these don't really look anything like the bones of people why why are we saying that these are the bones of giant people and um like they actually kind of look more like elephant bones, guys. Like maybe that's what they are, you know. And this kicks off um, actually about like uh, a historian of science Claudine Cohen refers to it as a six-year war, uh, intellectual war in France about the existence of giants. Um, but it's the first time that you see this idea, of, like this kind of doctrine of monsters, called into question. And this will have a direct impact on what like Jefferson and and Buffon are doing in their own time because this kind of thinking doesn't go away um and and what's important for jefferson here right so to get to to sort of answer the original question you know of of what's jefferson's connection to cryptozoology right well jefferson decides that his best way to refute 
Buffon's allegations of American degeneracy, right, is to uh, prove him wrong by showing that America actually does have really, really great animals, like monstrous animals. So he literally goes looking for monsters. That's his solution to to this problem. Um, and it, it's, it also motivates him to write his, uh, his first book, Notes on the State of Virginia. And it's when he's working on that book that he learns that in 1739, a, a French explorer traveling down the Ohio River uh, found a, a salt lick in uh, what is today Kentucky and that there were these giant bones in it. And uh, Jefferson starts trying to to find out more information about these bones and, and what they could possibly be. Um, and he one of the things that he finds is, you know, one of the people he ends up contacting is Ezra Stiles, who is the uh, the president of Yale University. And Ezra Stiles tells Jefferson, oh, those are giant bones. Like, that's what we know. Right. Like, that's mm-hmm. the tradition. And Jefferson is kind of like just gobsmacked. Right. I mean, this is this is like do again, what now? Do huh? Yeah. What? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Again, the, you're right. This is the president of Yale, you know, being like, oh, yeah, they're the bones of giants, you know, like from the Bible. And Jefferson's just like, no, no way. What? You know, there's got to be there's got to be a better explanation for this. So and that's that's sort of the that's sort of the start of this for Jefferson. Right. So is, he's um, his background is is law and obviously is in politics, too. Was he actually doing this? all like a armchair or was he actually going on expeditions and doing hands-on stuff so yeah so jefferson yeah so jefferson's education is yeah so he goes to the college of william and mary and he studies mathematics and philosophy and he but he also develops this really deep and abiding love for you know what they didn't have the term then but right but what we would today call science right of just like all all stripes um and what is it? What is it? They call it natural philosophy. Is that the natural natural philosophy at the time? Yeah. So, or you know, I mean, if you had a more of a religious bent to it, it was like natural theology, you know. So, but yeah, basically the study of nature, and um, and yeah, Jefferson. Yeah, he develops this very deep and abiding love love for science, and Jefferson was was methodical. I mean, you know, this was not. And this is an important part of this story, too, right? Because, I mean, so, you know, Buffon is basically a professional scientist, right? Jefferson is not. Jefferson is a is a politician. He works as a lawyer and then eventually yeah, gets involved in politics with the American Revolution and becomes an ambassador and, and then eventually a yeah, vice president, president, et cetera. But, you know, he's he's not a slouch about this. And so in, in the case of... Um, of like these bones, right? So he finds out these bones are in Kentucky, right? That they're basically just eroding out of the ground out of this salt lick. And so Jefferson wants to actually see them. He wants to look at them for himself. Now he doesn't go down to Kentucky because he's otherwise occupied. But, um, and this is a great part of the story. Uh, so he gets somebody to go uh, get the bones for him. And so the first person that he dispatches is actually Daniel Boone. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 legendary frontier. This is like a who's who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> story. So, what else do we know about him? Oh, he had a coonskin hat. That's right. I, yes. I knew that too. I remember that too. <laughs> so, so one of the people is Daniel Boone. One of the other people is this guy, General George Rogers Clark. 
um, who was the commander of the army in the West. And it's Clark who actually ends up agreeing to uh, to go down there, uh, get a bunch of these bones, gather them up, and ship them back to uh, to Jefferson, uh, uh, you know, up north um, or up in Virginia. Sorry, not north, but yeah, well, further north. But yeah, um, and Jefferson, and so Jefferson is able to to examine these bones for the first time and the thing that really strikes him about them is uh well so so not surprisingly one of the things is that so he fiercely disagrees with Buffon about them because Buffon knew about these bones too right it had been a French explorer who had originally found them so Buffon of course knew about them and so the thing that really struck everybody about them was that there are these huge bones and there are teeth in there and so some of the teeth are clearly tusks like those of an elephant right um, but the other thing are the molars, right? They have these masticating teeth or what they called grinders back then. And these are not like teeth that are found in modern elephants. And so there's, so that's the first big mystery, right? Because the assumption is that these are all the bones of one animal. And so it's like, well, what kind of animal has both tusks and grinding teeth? Because it's not any kind of animal that we know about. And Buffon's answer is actually, he thinks that, you know, they're probably not the same animal. He thinks they're two different animals. He thinks that tusks are those of an elephant and the teeth were, came from, from a hippopotamus. And Jefferson um, attacks Buffon over this conclusion in, uh, in Notes of the State of Virginia. Um, uh, pretty hilariously, actually, because he, it's just this very dry kind of, you know, uh, you know, sort of sarcastic sarcasm, really, where he's just kind of like, he's just like, yes, of course, because we all know that the hippopotamus um, at, and the elephant always go to the same place, the elephant to deposit its skeleton, but never its teeth and the hippopotamus to deposit its <laughs> teeth, but never its skeleton. I think it's you know? funny because any kind of argument about skeletons around uh, the dentation of any of these kind of pachyderms is, is necessarily going to have to be truncated. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so Jefferson doesn't think that this is the answer. He doesn't think it's two different animals. He thinks it's got to be the same animal. Um, and so, so yeah, so he's looking at these teeth, he's doing measurements, he's looking at the rest of these bones. He's trying to figure this out. Um, he's not the only person, somebody else that's also looking at this is a Scottish anatomist, William Hunter. Right, who was uh, the uh, personal physician of, of Queen Charlotte at the time? He's also really interested in this, and um, so and and Hunter comes to this interesting conclusion because uh, so so he he temporarily designates a name for this unknown animal, and uh, he calls it the incognitum, right, which is literally just the unknown animal, right. <laughs> so it, it's again, it's kind of the uh, the original cryptid, right. I mean, it's literally like the the unknown or, or the mystery animal, um, mm. and uh, and Hunter thinks because of the masticating teeth, he thinks that it's something like an elephant, but it has to be carnivorous, right? Because why else would you have grinding teeth if not for you know like chewing up bones and and getting to the marrow and that kind of stuff, um, and and so he makes that connection, and he also makes a connection to uh, the bones, like we mentioned earlier, that had been found in uh, in Europe, right? That were being found in uh, uh, France and other places 
in the uh, 1600s. And at this point, you know, there is this competing idea that they are not the bones of uh, giants, but that they are the bones of some kind of elephantine creature. And uh, people are starting to call it uh, a mammoth, right? That's the term, right? It's this big unknown animal, right? The mammoth. Um, and so this, of course, just all of this just excites Jefferson to no end, right? I mean, here is basically an American version of the mammoth, but it's a carnivore, right? Um, so this is exactly the kind of big, fearsome, monstrous animal that he's looking for. So I, I guess at this point in history, the history of science, it's, it's curious do people understand how frigging long it takes to make fossils? Uh, like, I, I get the impression that they know fossils represent a record of real animals, but do they understand the number of years that need to have gone by to fossilize? And I know even now that number is wildly variable depending on the circumstances of the, of the death of the animal. But uh, I, I'm just wondering, like, what the theory was at the time, or did you have a chance to look into that? If not, I could look into that myself and add it to the show notes. No, so there's um, so among among my many many resources for this, there's a really fantastic book that I would recommend for for listeners if they haven't read it, um, which is a uh, uh, Martin Rudwick's The Meanings of Fossils, um, which is just a history of fossils, right, and. Um, and so one of the things is that at Jefferson's time, they actually still don't really understand what fossils are even, right? As far as Jefferson's concerned, these are just bones. Um, they're not, and it, because it, it hasn't been that long, it, and that's, again, this is one of those things, it hasn't been that long since people have stopped thinking that fossils aren't even organic remains, right? Um, so because... That that's a big thing in the 1600s as well. I don't are you, are you either of you familiar with Glossiopetra? No. No, but that sounds like the language of stone. Uh, it's or um, something so, like that. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, uh, tongue. It literally means tongue stones. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So so this not not to make a tangent, but this is relevant. So Glossiopetra are tongue stones, and what they are is they're the old term for shark's teeth. Um, okay. but nobody, nobody knew that they were shark's teeth, right? I mean, you can go all the way back to like Pliny and like Pliny says that, you know, he talks about these strange triangular stones that you can find. Um, he thinks they fall from the sky on moonless nights, right? Nobody knows what they are, but they, there's this idea that they have sort of medicinal or, uh, medical properties to them. And, uh, so people start collecting them all the way up through the middle ages uh, you know, especially people in the aristocracy who were worried about being poisoned because it was thought that if you had glossiopetra, um, these sort of weird tongue-shaped stones, that they would, they would protect you. And mm. so the first time that this idea that, you know, they're sort of just these, these what were called at the time like sports of nature, right? Just these weird stones that were somehow made um, that kind of resembled things but weren't really those things was um, – in uh, in 1616, you have a, a, a Italian lawyer, uh, Fabio Colonna, and uh, Colonna actually gets hired by some of his clients who are the who are rich, and they're like, you know, they want to know whether or not these glossiopetra that they're you know expending money on to procure are really going to protect them from poison or if they're being uh, scammed. And uh, Fabio Colonna um, does this really 
in-depth investigation into the Glossiopetra and his conclusion that he comes to at the end uh, is, and I'm just going to read the quote here because I think if I paraphrase it, nobody will believe me that he actually wrote this, but he writes, quote, nobody is so stupid that he will not affirm at once at the first insight that these are teeth and not stones. You see, you see, you're stupid minds, stupid, stupid. So Kelowna, so Kelowna comes out and says, you know, these are these are clearly teeth, and he thinks that they're probably shark's teeth. Um, wow! But nobody nobody really believes him, and it isn't until <laughs> um, almost uh, it, a little bit past the middle of of the century in 1666, um, Nicholas Steno, who is a uh, Danish scientist, and he actually has a chance to, uh, he's the first person to ever get to dissect a great white shark. And uh, he he writes up this whole paper. I mean, about he, he's not the first human to see the inside of a shark. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, this, this is this is this is undoubtedly true. Yeah, he he gets to dissect a great white shark, and when he does, he makes a very careful examination of the teeth, and he's like, "Yeah, Kelowna was right. Like these, this is definitely what Glossiopetra are. They're just shark's teeth, but they're shark's teeth that have somehow turned to stone." And he's really, Steno is really mystified by this. He can't figure out how this happens. And he ends up then devoting a lot of his, the rest of his life um, and his scientific career to trying to figure out kind of the process of fossilization. But this is still sort of an ongoing mystery by the time you get to like Buffon and Jefferson. And and even if they're, they're starting to have some ideas about how fossilization works and those sorts of things, they still also... Then the other part of the story that's really important is that fossilization does not equate um, extinction in their minds, right? Um, because that's that's the other thing that's really important for Jefferson, right? Is that he's looking at these bones, he's looking at this this potential creature, the incognitum, and Jefferson's not thinking that this is something that once lived in North America. He's thinking that this is something that currently lives in North America. And he's so convinced that it does currently live in North America that when he publishes Notes on the State of Virginia in 1785, he includes the incognitum amongst the list of, of extant fauna in the country. So, And you write about in your paper that Jefferson didn't believe in extinction or he changed his mind later in life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I think this is actually a really, really important part of this whole story. So Jefferson... Um, so Jefferson was a deist. And so for people who aren't familiar with that, because it's, it's not really a term that you hear much more, um, deism was a, uh, a, a religious belief that emerged really in the late 16th century in France uh, and sort of spread through Europe and America in the 17th century and then came to exert um, a really powerful influence than during the the 18th century um, at the time of the Enlightenment. And it was basically this idea that said that while God existed and was the author of creation, um, that was it. You, ju you just stopped there, right? He didn't intervene in, uh, in the affairs of creation. There were no miracles. Divine intervention's not a thing. You don't have to worry about God's wrath. You don't have to worry about what God wants you to do really in terms of morality. None of that stuff is is of real relevance. Um, so it's it's a belief that preserves that idea 
in the existence of God and sort of the the creation of the universe, but it doesn't have any of the kind of moral theological baggage that you usually associate with religion. Um, and it, it becomes really popular amongst a lot of uh, of thinkers during Jefferson's time, including Jefferson, uh, Franklin, a lot of the founding fathers, actually, probably most famously Thomas Paine. He writes a whole book about it, The Age of Reason, which is about as close as you get to kind of a, a work of deistic um, proselytization. That's one of the reasons you don't really hear about deists anymore, is that, you know, they didn't really have that uh, mandate to go out and proselytize and make more deists. Right, e evangelical uh -huh. deists, not, not so much a thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah, but, but it's interesting to me. I mean, I don't want this to sidetrack. You, you know, we we typically avoid religion and politics on the show. I, I think because um, uh, they seem to cause more vitriol and splitting of audiences than I like. I mean, I mean, I I think I think hone your critical thinking and that that sort of thing. You'll get to your own conclusions. But uh, one of the things I find interesting is. Um, this, this whole thing about deists around this time, it seems like one of the main reasons that they were holding on to the idea of a God that just sort of kicks things off is that they didn't have an explanation for how we get the complexity of life. And so when, when Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection as being the sort of, uh, uh, what is it, the blind watchmaker behind, you know, this sort of diversification of species comes along, it finally fills in that gap. It's the missing piece that's needed. So when people are willing to take a sort of atheistic stance before Darwin, it's a much bigger leap, it seems, um, than after. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. But that, that may just be my take. I, does, does anything in your research... Uh, confirm that or am i way off track there uh no i mean it's pretty controversial i mean and and so and and just to clarify i mean you know so deism is you know again it's it's not atheism it's right a form of right deism. it's not right 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 um there are some historians who think you know that buffon in all probability was an atheist so because like i mentioned before in his his in, uh, encyclopedia of natural history he puts forward what is the first ever like secular explanation for the creation of the earth which is also actually relevant to his um uh, sort of his theory of degeneracy because his idea is that basically the earth and the other planets um so he he thinks buffon thinks that the sun is probably a, a massive ball of burning metal 
And so he thinks that at some point, little chunks of metal kind of broke off from it and that they eventually were caught, you know, in its orbit and then cooled down over time. And that they, that's what became the Earth and and the other planets. And Buffon sort of tests this. He gets balls of iron and he heats them up, you know, till they're they're white hot. And then he watches how long it takes them to cool. And he does the math and extrapolates it out. Um, and and so that's actually one of perhaps the most provocative part of natural history um, because it gets uh, it gets him into a lot of trouble with sort of the ecclesiastical authorities in France at the time because he's proposing this idea of the creation of the earth that doesn't involve any kind of of deity and also because his calculation says that um, if this is the way the earth was made it is way older than 6,000 years right. so because uh, he's like you, you could not cool a ball of iron the size of the earth uh in six thousand years you know and then because it, math yeah yeah because of math <laughs> so, um so yeah so you know so both buffon and jefferson in a sense are kind of on on the fringes of what is accepted in terms of of religion broadly and so is so is thomas paine and everything and i mean even thomas paine you know goes to will later go to france during like the french revolution and stuff and will end up getting thrown into uh, the Bastille at one point because of his, his having written Age of Reason, right? I mean, like, they do not take kindly to, to like, this sort of, like, deistic uh, notions. So, yeah, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're not mainstream in their religious beliefs necessarily. But a- across the board, regardless, is that one idea that is really not acceptable is this idea of extinction, right? Regardless of where you're coming from. Because if you're if you're a more sort of orthodox uh, Christian believer at this time, you don't believe in the idea of extinction because it flies in the face of the idea of God's um, benevolence, right? Like, why would God allow any part of His creation to be, you know, blighted out in its entirety, right? You know, and for Jefferson, his issue isn't so much that as much as it is um, that you know he's he's thinking about the universe as sort of again, that kind of like watchmaker argument, right? That this is a machine that is so finely tuned that if you pull one gear or cog out of it, the whole thing is going to stop working. So you can't have, you can't have species going extinct. So. So did he suffer any consequences for his perspectives um, in, in, in America or um, was there any kind of pushback against his views so as far as i know and i may i may be mistaken about this i'm not aware of there being pushback that jefferson ever got um you know as far as like you know did his deism ever damage uh like his political career or anything not that i'm aware of which is uh, is kind of amazing when you think about it like i don't know if i mean i don't certainly don't think we could have elected deist nowadays you know um but but interestingly enough you know which is sort of jumping ahead in the story um towards the end of jefferson's political career his uh his cryptozoological pursuits did come back to kind of bite him a little bit so jefferson may not have gotten a negative uh impact from his deism but thomas paine did uh thomas paine got like really nailed towards the end of his life he was basically treated uh as uh, a pariah and even though he was instrumental in his 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 writing 
was very instrumental in the uh, sort of setting up of America's government ideas. But by the time he died, because of his deism, and specifically because uh, of his writing, which seemed to advocate, if not for atheism, certainly from a purely rational view of a, of a, a rudderless universe, nobody's driving. Um, he, he only had six people attend his funeral, um, which is, it, it's not because nobody knew who he was, it's because they did know who he was, and they were really, right. uh, they didn't want to be seen as supporting him, which is, uh, mm. yeah, the world's changed. So, yeah. So Jefferson basically gets into uh, a, a, not a war, but he intellectually he wants to prove uh, that America is not degenerate. He wants to show Buffon uh, that America has uh, a very robust life and uh, animal forms. So how does he approach that? What does he do to try to make the case? So he does a couple of different things. So so he's really interested in this this incognitum, right? This unknown animal. And so he starts trying to build a case that this thing exists, right? Um you know that it, that it is somewhere out there in the unexplored American interior. There's so there's clearly so much of North America. We haven't explored the whole thing. We are not in a position to say what isn't 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 is not out there. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one thing that he goes back to again and again uh, throughout his his life and his career uh, when making this argument. The other thing that he does, um, which uh, just which has a really close similarities to something that modern day cryptozoologists are still doing is that um jefferson also starts basically compiling uh native american legends uh to that he thinks are about this incognitum right so in particular at some point and this is a little fuzzy because it's not no nobody seems to know exactly when this happened but it was sometime between 1775 and, and 81 jefferson meets up with a delegation of uh, uh, warriors from the Delaware tribe. And uh, they tell him this legend that they have about the big buffalo, which is you know, supposed to be this giant creature who at one point basically is just sort of rampaging across the country, just killing all animals, destroying Native American settlements. And it gets so bad that the sort of supreme deity comes down and, and basically slaughters off uh, th- this race of the big buffalo, except for one big bull that's left. And uh, according to to the Delaware, this bull um, eventually flees uh, off into into the American interior. And so Jefferson sees this again as positive evidence that these sorts of creatures um, exist. Again, he doesn't believe that they've actually all been like slaughtered, and there's only one of them because he doesn't believe in extinction. And this is clearly you know, divine intervention uh, here in this legend. But he, you know, he he cherry picks the parts of the legend that he likes um, and uses it as as part of his argument. And and those are both things that you still see in contemporary cryptozoology, right? They're hallmarks, right? This this argument of, you know, well, there is unknown country out there where all kinds of weird creatures could be hiding. We haven't fully explored it. And so we don't know what's out there. And then there are legends about monsters and those legends have to be based on something uh, legitimate. So, and, um, and Jefferson does this not only with the incognitum, uh, 
you know, later on in Jefferson's life, uh, you know, he becomes uh, uh, around the time that he's he's vice president. He also becomes the president of the American Philosophical Society, which is the foremost scientific organization in the in the U.S. at that time. And um, in 1796, he gets sent another box of bones, uh, this time from Greenbrier, West Virginia, uh, from from a different uh, uh, military person that he has uh, sort of in his his circle of, of contacts, and Jefferson examines all of these bones that he sent and comes to the conclusion that they're the bones of a giant lion. Uh, he names it Megalonyx or Giant Claw, um, and he ends up writing and presenting a paper about this for the American Philosophical Society, uh, which has you know one of those great long-winded titles that you used to get. Back in the day, it was, it was a right. memoir on the discovery of certain bones of a quadruped of the clawed kind in the western parts of Virginia. Were these uh, creatures disproved in Jefferson's lifetime, or did he die still believing in some of these creatures? Um. So, yeah, so what ends up, so with both the uh, me, uh, incognitum and the megalonics, what ends up happening with both of those creatures, which yeah, Jefferson supports through the bones, through there being unexplored areas of, of North America through Native American legend, through traveler's tales. He marshals all of this kind of stuff. Jefferson will publish his megalonics paper in 1799, which is the year after he presents it. And um, when he publishes it, he appends this note to the end, pointing out that he may be wrong about the lion thing because he's learned that there have been similar bones found in Argentina and that a different French scientist, uh, Georges Cuvier, who's often regarded as the father of paleontology. Um, but what, what more important uh, for, for our purposes, um, Georges Cuvier is also the father of the science of comparative anatomy. And Cuvier looks at these bones from Argentina and you know, determines that they're actually the bones of a uh, giant sloth. And uh, Cuvier is also the one who will get a hold of the, the incognitum bones and will eventually realize that they are the bones of a uh, um, unknown or a, a, a extinct type of prehistoric elephant, which he will dub the mastodon. And, and no, it's not carnivorous, right? So, so in a sense, Jefferson's both of, the, both of these monsters for Jefferson do get disproven in his lifetime. Um, he, he holds out for a really, really long time. I think, uh, as Blake kind of alluded earlier, you know, by the time he becomes president, um, you know, one of the first big things that Jefferson does, uh, you know, well, two years into his presidency, right, is he uh, does the Louisiana Purchase and expands, you know, the size of the American territory. And then he dispatches Lewis and Clark to go explore it. And he gives them explicit instructions to look for uh, mastodons and megatheriums in the American interior. Um, so, and and this is this is actually one of the the sort of like top five things he tells them to do, right? Um, so, yeah, he uh, and um, and of course they don't find any. They they find lots of you know amazing you know, animals and plants and, and contact, you know, many different tribes. And some of the stuff when you read uh, Lewis and Clark's journals and notes, you know, are, are certainly really weird because there's stuff in there where they talk about finding at one point, like 
they're they're out in the the American uh, West around what, what today would be like Utah um, or uh, or Kansas, and uh, they talk about like finding the backbones of like giant fish sticking up out of the ground. Well, today we know that those were like mosasaurs, you know, but they don't know what that is at the time. So there is there's there's some neat stuff in there, but you know they don't find any living prehistoric animals. This surprised me. I wrote this down as a question for you because I. I he spent a lot of time looking for a really large specimen of moose. Mm. But why not go with grizzlies? Good Lord, those are impressive. I mean, that it, it, and I know Lewis and Clark ran into a lot of grizzlies. I, I, I remember watching that, that documentary about that. Uh, was it Undaunted Courage, I think is what it was called. Uh, the book. Oh, yeah, that's the, yeah, Am- yeah, that's the book. Steve, yeah, it was yeah. Stephen Ambrose, I think. Um, I read the book and I watched the Kim Burns documentary about Lewis and Clark. And I, I and there's that funny thing where they're they're talking and the the log entry is like, you know, it's basically like, you know, honestly, we're we've had enough of these grizzlies. You know, it's like it's really understated, but like <laughs> grizzly bears are they're badass. Busy. I mean, <laughs> it's like what do they have in Europe to compare? I mean, like what, what, what? I mean, sure, it's not an elephant, but good grief, a grizzly bear is plenty good enough, isn't it? It's like so. There, there's, there's two things about that, right? So, I mean, I, I kind of skipped over the the moose thing, which is a really important part of this story because so, so undoubtedly part of the reason why Jefferson doesn't use grizzly bears once Lewis and Clark finds them is because also I think towards this point in. Jefferson's life and his career, you know, and especially now that he's into his presidency and stuff, this isn't as big of a concern for him uh, anymore in some ways. And of course, the other thing is uh, that Buffon by this point has has passed away. Buffon dies in uh, 1788, right? Um, and, And Jefferson did have a chance to meet him, right? That's the other really interesting part of this story is, you know, Jefferson is eventually appointed ambassador to France. And while he's in France, um, he is furiously writing various people and contacts that he has back in back in the United States um, and pleading with them to basically catch him a giant moose. And I mean, like giant. Uh, He wants a moose that's like 12 feet at the shoulder, you know, Um, which I mean, they don't get that big that that we know of. But they are quite moosive. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that, what else can you say to that <laughs> yeah i mean he won't he wants a giant moose though and there's there's a great book about this by lee allen dugkin called jefferson and the giant moose right um which is all about jefferson's sort of obsessive you know desire you know hiring all these kind of contract hunters and and people to to go out there and bag him this moose because he basically wants to have this thing shipped to france and he has this this dinner that he's been able to secure with buffon and you know his his desire is apparently to show up at this dinner and throw this like moose carcass in buffon's face and be like (laughs) you know look look you know look how big and impressive our animals are um mm-hmm. he, he's he's never able to really do that he has to settle for um he had he'd purchased a, a a cougar skin in a haberdashery um literally like a few hours before he left for uh for france and he ends up giving that to buffon and apparently buffon is actually rather impressed by it right he's actually surprised how big um this cat is 
you know, that lives in, uh, in, in America. And, and Jefferson goes on about how fierce, you know, cougars are, which Buffon had, had written in natural history that they were pretty wimpy animals, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and, and Jefferson sees this as sort of tantamount to kind of like, you know, a sort of first successful, like checkmate here in this intellectual competition with, with Buffon. Um, you know, but, but he still wants, he still wants this moose and, you know, eventually he will be, he will be shipped one. Uh, his, his people eventually bag him one in like 1787 and they, they ship it off to Jefferson. He gets it, uh, like, uh, a year later in 1788 and he has it sent straight away to Buffon with a note attached to it, basically apologizing that it's only seven feet tall, but assuring him that moose get much bigger. Um, you know, but but within six months of well, we don't even know if Buffon ever saw this thing. Um, I've I've seen some claims that Buffon did see it and that it was so poorly like taxidermied that it was actually kind of like rotting and smelled, and Buffon had his people get rid of it. I'm not sure if that's true. That story might be apocryphal um, because it's also possible that Buffon never even saw it because at this point he was he was pretty old. He was pretty ill. Um, he died six months after Jefferson's moose would have shown up on his doorstep. So, um, and, and, but he never, he never renounced his claim of American sort of zoological inferiority either, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he, he held on to that idea, you know, really to, to the very end. Um, but yeah, so definitely by the time Jefferson has Lewis and Clark out there looking for, uh, mammoths and, and giant sloths and stuff, he, uh, you know, I mean, certainly I'm sure probably, you know, the, the discovery of the grizzly and things delighted him, but um, they weren't they weren't things that he could show, um, you know, show, show to Buffon. And the other thing about that is. Um, is that what that also what also relates to is sort of a, um, Blake's other point. Also, by that time, Buffon's ideas of, of American degeneracy were really had really been refuted by um uh, an actual sort of qualified scientist which was alexander von humboldt and jefferson and humboldt were were friends they really admired each other they apparently spent a week together in washington in 1804 um you know but humboldt traveled all over uh both uh, north and south america and made really thorough accurate documentation of what the actual flora and fauna in in uh, the americas were and um you know, that work did a lot more to, you know, refute Buffon's ideas of American degeneracy than basically any of Jefferson's sort of posturing or monster hunting. So, you know, I mean, in, in a way, it, it's there's there's a I think there's a, a version of this story where you could look at this as being maybe a little bit sad in the sense that, you know, Jefferson, you know, he, he has this this um, this aim to sort of prove how great North American, you know, fauna is but he becomes so preoccupied with looking for you know these these non-existent or extinct animals that you know he kind of ends up ignoring i guess possibly you know like the the real uh animals and plants that are out there that could have made his case for them i mean that certainly uh right. humboldt uses to make make the case eventually mm -hmm. so. i think we can all at least agree that were he alive today jefferson would really enjoy godzilla <laughs> So I, th I think that he was basically looking for moose kaiju. Can we talk just a little bit more about the fossil um, that Jefferson misidentified as a cat? 
Yeah, the 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 uh, Megatherium. Yeah. Yeah. The, the so that's gonna well, it's relevant because I completed an interview about the uh, actual identity. Um, so we we did. I, I talked to a uh, paleontologist and have that. Uh, I'm trying to decide whether I should put your episode out first or the the, the giant sloth episode out. But, but those animals are amazing, and so for for Jefferson to misidentify it as a cat, even though he's wrong about what it was, it doesn't uh, diminish the magnitude of this amazing big animal. Megatherium, or the the North American variation, is megalonyx. I mean, that's how you know, binomial nomenclature works, right? Jefferson named it first. So even though he was wrong about what kind of animal it was, it's still actually a megalonyx um, today. But yeah, I mean, Jefferson thought that it was a lion and, and, you know, he thought it was this seven foot tall, 2000 pound lion, which it wasn't. It was a giant ground sloth. And Jefferson did eventually come to, to realize that and accept that he still thought it might be alive out there in the American interior. Um, you know, but, uh, and, and sent Lewis and Clark looking for it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it is interesting, though, because, yeah, you're, you're talking about, um, I forget what they're called, right? What's the, um, the cryptozoology? Oh, it, the, it, to spoiler, Mapinguari is the folklore go. animal uh, that, it, it, I, I don't want to spoil this because yeah. I'll un- unfold all that in the other episode. But uh, basically, um, the folk, there's this folklore animal um, called Mapinguari, which somewhat maps closely to the megatherium uh, giant sloth animal. Like some of the characteristics of this folklore animal are very similar to this extinct uh, animal. And so in the classic sort of cryptozoology wants an extinct animal to actually have extant populations still around out there. Um, it, it's that that's the connection that's been made and, and we'll talk about that in that other episode but uh, it, I thought it was really interesting how that it has all these parallels to this Jeffersonian approach which which in conjunction with your paper completely I think supports the hypothesis or the premise that Jefferson was an early cryptozoologist you know maybe mm-hmm. there wasn't as much established science around what animals were really alive, which were extinct, or how to fossils form. You know, the time's off. There's a lot of things that are missing. But he saw evidence for this massive animal, and he wanted to defend his country against this insult that he saw from Europe. And one really great way to do that would just be to prove the point, but, you know, produce a body. So in that yeah. sense, he's literally doing what most cryptozoologists want to do. There's a story. Mm. There's some evidence. Let's go prove it, Right. Yeah, I think Jefferson's methodology is dead on. I mean, he is using the methodology of of a cryptozoologist in what he's doing. And what's also really interesting is that a lot of the creatures that Jefferson was looking for still exist um, to a certain degree in the cryptozoological literature, right? I mean, they they definitely don't have the prominence of of like Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Loch Ness Monster and, and what have you. Uh, nowadays, I think, but, you know, I mean, uh, Hulverman's talks about, you know, both the idea of surviving mammoths and surviving megatheriums in On the Track of Unknown Animals. Um, and uh, one of the things that I found that was really interesting is that there are still actually um, reports of cryptid giant moose as well. Um in uh, Massachusetts, Maine, and Vermont. 
So uh, Lauren Coleman has written about that in his book, Monsters of Massachusetts. So uh, he calls them the spectral moose. Um, and uh, there's a, another entry that I found in uh, Joseph uh, uh, Citro's The Vermont Monster Guide was for the king moose. So um, and what, what's really interesting about <laughs> I, I'm suddenly thinking about the rat king only with moose. <laughs> Uh, so but, that's horrifying but, yeah it really is <laughs> so quickly but, for, for people who get that joke without having to look it up rat kings are uh when a lot of rats uh get tied together by their tails their tails become knotted and so you get this sort of writhing mass of rats whose mobility is limited uh and they're they get quite hungry it's pretty nasty so yeah uh Justin, do you know if he, if uh, Jefferson continued an interest in this topic throughout his whole life, or did he, once he had the presidency, he just kind of gave up on on this and uh, no, moved on to other areas? Jefferson Jefferson maintained an interest in science throughout his entire life, um, and uh, all the way up through through his presidency. Um, you know, he apparently had uh, an entire room in the White House set aside that he filled with, you know, taxidermied animals and, and fossil bones and all kinds of things. Uh, he kept writing about this on the side. He, he kept working on it. And, and like I alluded to earlier, this was something that actually ended up having a, a certain degree of uh, political liability. Um, and so what it was, was uh, so in 1809, when Jefferson's getting ready to, uh, you know, end his, his time as president, he's trying to make sure that uh, his friend and, and fellow um, Democratic Republican James Madison is going to get elected in uh, in his stead, and um, and so the the opposition party at that time is the Federalists, and they actually put out sort of the uh, the nineteenth century equivalent of a political attack ad, um, which is a poem, which is so much more classy than political attack ads today, um, but th they do they publish this poem where they basically t uh, tell Jefferson, like, you know, you know, look, you know, you, you need to get out of office, you need to take a hike, um, and just go do what you're good at, which is digging around in swamps for giant frogs and looking for big bones and not trying to run the government because you're terrible at it. And Madison's going to be terrible at it, too. So don't vote for Madison, you know. Ouch. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so, yeah, it does end up having a, a little bit of, of political liability for him uh, towards the end of his life. The, the other interesting thing that I found um, that I'm, I'm still trying to work out exactly on, speaking of sort of political liability and cryptozoology, um, is, is also the Embargo Act. So, you know, in, in 1807, Jefferson passes this thing called the Embargo Act, where um, he forbids american ships from trading in foreign ports and he does this because uh he's he's trying to punish britain and france for interfering with american trade while the two countries were at war with each other and this ends up being a really uh unpopular policy because it obviously has really detrimental effects on the u.s economy and it turns out that one place that was really really badly affected by the Embargo Act was uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts. So, and if you're a, a cryptozoology fan, that name should 
ring a bell because that's the place that just a few years after Jefferson's death is going to become just a hotbed for sea serpent sightings. And the connection here, which is something that was pointed out by W. Scott Poole, um, uh, is the fact that uh, during the time of the Embargo Act, there are uh, political cartoons published in Gloucester uh, newspapers where people are basically saying, you know, we would rather have our ports filled with sea monsters than Jefferson's policies. Um, and <laughs> I, I've, I've talked to Scott about this via email, and he has said, so not, not to misrepresent his position, he does not, he is not suggesting that, um, uh, that this that this somehow led people to see sea serpents. Um, but I'm not so sure that it didn't personally. Yeah, the, I think this, okay, yeah. I'm more and more inclined to think that priming has more power than people realize. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there is, um, I, I think that's a really intriguing uh, kind of connection there that, you know, you you basically have this, this kind of rhetoric and that it, it you know, Shortly thereafter, you do have, uh, you know, actual then sea serpent sightings just explode in and around Gloucester, Massachusetts. And the other interesting connection about that is that, you know, there's been some work done by um, uh, a marine biologist, R.L. France, who has argued that, you know, the Gloucester sea serpent sightings and some other very famous sea serpent sightings from around that time were the result of... Uh, animals uh he thinks mostly turtles but also possibly whales being uh trapped in uh fishing nets um and i i and i think that that's really interesting because it also relates then to this kind of larger picture about you know jefferson being resistant like a lot of people last time it's not just jefferson you know being resistant to this idea of extinction and not realizing what extinction is and the ramifications of it, and especially then that extinction in in can can be man-made, right? Because you know, I mean, at this same time that Jefferson, you know, is is denying the validity of extinction, you know, you are having the first sort of real historical examples of things like stellar sea cow and the dodo and the great auk. Well, the great auk will be later. That's Darwin, but you know, but you start having these these things where you have actual human extermination of animal populations, and so then to kind of also think that there's this sort of link between Jefferson sea serpent sightings and the idea that what these sea serpent sightings could have possibly been is uh, animals uh, struggling with our garbage in the ocean is, I, I think, all really kind of interesting. So, yeah. All right, which okay. I, I guess leads us to uh, a question you probably should be Final expecting. Question. So, Justin, you're a listener of the show. You know what I'm going to ask next. What's your favorite monster? Um, so that's that's a really it's a really easy answer for me, which is um, it's Godzilla. Nice. So, I was I yeah. figured that's what it would be. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, if I if I'm if I'm being I mean, it shouldn't even be a debatable issue because, yeah, I mean, like that's, you know, I, mean, I have a lot of general, broad, wide-reaching monster enthusiasm, but in terms of just monsters that have had a a large impact on my life and that, you know, I've uh, 
you know spent a lot of time with it definitely it has to be it has to be godzilla i love those movies so you, much you, you so. were the only presenter at that conference to dress as godzilla for your talk that was uh, i thought a good move <laughs> oh, <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> it, did i was this the wrong approach <laughs> that was really interesting and i had no idea about this topic at all so this is i think this is going to be a popular episode well justin Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much for your yes. patience, as always. Um, golly. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, thank you so much. I was, yeah, this is an honor. So, I mean, honestly, this is it's a little bit of a bucket list thing. So. Oh, good. Well, and of course, now you've seen how we make the soup. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is fun peeking behind the curtains. Yeah, so, yeah. How terrible and disorganized it is. Why? Why the editing is so important? <laughs> yes, not doing it live, right? Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today you heard a discussion with Justin Mullis about Thomas Jefferson, Monster Hunter. Justin's presentation will hopefully be available along with some other papers from the Of Gods and Monsters conference, if all goes according to plans. But for now, you can check out the show notes at monstertalk.org for some additional reading suggestions around this topic. You can also find Justin in the Monster Talk Facebook group, where he's a frequent contributor. Stop by and say hi. And if you want to hear more about Megatherium, the giant sloth that we talked about in this episode, please check out our previous show, number 194, with paleontologist Dr. Richard Farinha, which is all about these magnificent extinct creatures. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. We love to talk about monsters in ways that promote critical thinking, inspire scientific curiosity, and help us understand not just the creatures, but ourselves. If you enjoy Monster Talk, please take a moment to leave a positive rating and review on iTunes. Five-star reviews help us show up on the iTunes rating lists and to reach new listeners. Monster Talk is a Patreon-supported podcast. At patreon.com forward slash monster talk, you can subscribe to an extended commercial-free version of the show for as little as $1 a month. We also have a Monster Talk Facebook group where we have an active community of Monster Talk enthusiasts as well as monster lovers who just wandered in from the cold and found a warm place to relax. Won't you join us? Monster Talk's an independent production of Monster House LLC. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Monster House presentation. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.